Welcome to the Corey Mila podcast, exploring stories and ideas about conflict, peace, theology, and art. Hello, my name is Padraig Otuma, and you're listening to the Corey Mila podcast. With me today is Noreen Nirian. Noreen is an internationally acclaimed singer and musicologist and theologian, as well as an expert on Celtic spirituality. For many years, she lived and made music with the Benedictine community at Glenstall Abbey in County Limerick in the southwest of Ireland. Noreen has performed all over the world for audiences that have included Bill Clinton and Mary McAleese and the Dalai Lama. She's also an interfaith minister and has used her passions for music and spirituality in the creation of rituals and ceremonies to mark birth and death and marriages, as well as all the separations and blessings for the home. And throughout her life, she's combined passions for singing and Gregorian chant and spirituality and ritual and theology and the Irish language. Her most recent book, Sacred Rituals, a simple book of everyday prayer, was published in October 2023 with Hachette. So, Noreen, you're very welcome to the Carmilla podcast. False Rotary. Agus Carmilla Mahagat, a Fadrig, Don Quirisa, Mar Tugginshit Plunder, and Machri, can vet lat, iduth boire, ach can vet a kind slay, Carmilla Freshen Mar, ta ane, um, fess a gun Ellen Upper, a yin and shivenson. Ah, Grimilla Mahagat. Um, we'll probably go in and out of Irish a little bit throughout the whole conversation, Noreen. And anytime you or I do, sure one of us can provide a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of a translation and either hangera and interlanguaging and intertonguing. Um, so you were just saying that yeah, you are happy to be um, here, and also that you have um, deep interest in the work of Cory Miller. We can talk a little bit about the way that your work of blessing and ritual making overlaps, I think, with some of the work that peace and reconciliation work does. Um, but to start, Noreen, I wanted to ask you a question. Was there an experience um, or friendship in your childhood that you feel prepared you for the work you do now? A lovely question. Actually, I suppose it was on sort of a negative side, really, in that I was a troubled child, Maudrig. And so very early on, I developed a connection there with this invisible friend. And so that became very concrete for me when I was a small child, even though, of course, I was totally unconscious of it then. But I can see now that it really kept me going mm -hmm. and that I had this friend, as it were, in my ear yeah. who uh, traveled with me and has still travels with me, actually, now at the ripe old age of 72. And uh, so I think more than that, it was my own internal desires, um, Padre, that created this presence in my yeah, life. This other to talk to. Um, did they have a name? Well, I suppose at that time I would have said God. Even though now I know with the nine billion people that we have on the planet, that we'd all have a different for that presence. And indeed, yeah. some of us will say there's no presence there at all. Yeah. So at that stage, it was um, God, I think, but not a God of Michelangelo, you know, a God <laughs> of a man with a long beard, a white man with a long beard, um, you know, a, a cruel to be kind God. Yeah. It was really very much a friendship. And somebody who was, as you know, in Irish, 
um, Father, we have this concept of an Anam Kara, which soul is friend. Yeah. Yes, which is much more than just a friend that you might go to the pictures with or you might have brunch with or a cup of coffee. It's somebody who brings out the best in you, who challenges you indeed. And that voice did challenge me and did inspire me and still does mm. to go beyond myself. Mm. Now at my old, sorry. No, I, now at your old age of 72, were you about to say that? <laughs> I was about to say, it still tells me, look at you're still not too old to follow your dreams. Go on, go on there. <laughs> Where was it you grew up, Noreen? I grew up in Cahirkanlisha, a little place in southeast Limerick, quite close, five miles from where I'm actually living now, near the monastery of Glenstall Abbey, County mm. Limerick. So yeah. quite near Shannon Airport for oh, anybody there, yeah, yeah. who would know um, the uh, Ireland to travel to or whatever. Um, so a nice area, a very particular. I was born, I was conceived and brought up for the first four years of my life, Father, beside one of our oldest sacred sites, mm. which is in Loch Gore, yeah. um, the oldest stone circle in the British Isles, indeed. Ah. And uh, so that place still calls me home. Yeah. I have wonderful memories. No, you see, I was we left when I was four. So I really haven't that many concrete memories. But when I go back there, I know that I am at home in another space, you know. Mm. Um, for uh, years now, you've lived very near to Glenstall Abbey, the Benedictine monastery in County Limerick. Um, but I know you visited there as a child as well. What, what mm. are your memories or your experiences of having visited as a child the place that you now live very near? Peace, hmm. I think. And even though I didn't know the monks here because I was five or six or seven or eight and before I went to boarding school at the age of 12, I would cycle over here, which is just five miles from here. And I felt at home, I'd drop my little bicycle and walk up the avenue. Huh. And then much, much later when we married, uh, we came to live here on when Michal, my husband, my former husband who passed over in 2018, when he was on sabbatical, we actually came to live in the monastery hmm. in the little house there. And then when I, we separated, um, I went to live there for 16 years, Padraig, on and on, huh. until 2016. Um, and you collaborated musically with um, the, the monks of the Abbey. There's a variety of recordings and writings that came from that time. Yeah, I want to yeah. talk about music in your life, but maybe to go back a little bit, you went to University College Cork to study music and Sean O'Riada and Pila Bolira were two big influences on you there. I wonder if you could talk about the influences of Sean O'Riada and Pila Bolira on you in terms of your musical training. Well, without Pilab, I wouldn't have done music at all, Patrick. He came to examine me in my final year in high school or secondary school, as we'd say. And he said, what are you going to do next year? I sang for him and I played the piano. And then he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to do law in in TCD. And he said, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, you're coming to do music in UCC. And so I said, but my parents would not consider that at all. And he said, leave that to me. And he drove down, yeah, it was quite a miraculous story. He drove down and into my parents' house and convinced my parents that they should allow me to go to UCC, which is where he was teaching part time. And so he said he'd give me his books and he would teach me choral conducting and he would look after me, which he did. Huh. 
And then of course our first that first year and our second year, we had Sean O'Reilly who was mm. a very important figure in Irish music. And he it was that opened up the whole treasure trove of the Irish language. Mm. Because I don't know your own experience. I'd love to hear that too, Patrick, mm. of learning the Irish language. But in most cases, it's abominably taught mm. and very badly um, with no love and no, not the music of it, the poetry of it, not at all. So Sean Rea really sparked that in us. And so we all changed our names. I was Noreen Ryan at that stage oh. and went to Noreen Mirian after that. Because, yeah. of course, that's what Sean Arida had done himself. He was oh, Johnny okay. And ah. so he changed Sean Arida. Michal O'Sullivan was Michael O'Sullivan, Mick Sullivan. Yeah. And we changed Michal O'Sullivan. Ah. You told me once that Pilla Bolira used to invite you to a class. Was it every Saturday morning? And he would get you to memorize something and that you weren't allowed to take notation. You had to have it by ear and by heart by the next week. Is that right? Do I remember that right? You have a great memory, Father. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would go out to visit his house in Bishopstown. And so I'd sit at his feet, nearly quite literally, and no recordings at that stage. And if I got a note wrong, that was the end of it, Father. He was a difficult test master. <laughs> I learned so much from him, but he was a very, very um, uh, eccentric man, too. Yeah. And uh, then he had this store our own, as we'd say, this repertoire of um, songs that he had collected in his youth in Ring, County Waterford, hmm. in the Ring Gaeltoth, and which is a beautiful Irish um, speaking area. Um, and the Conwind, the dialect is beautiful. And it has a huge repertoire of wonderful songs, hmm. wonderful. So and what is it that these songs are addressing or some of them religious and some of them agricultural and then everything in between or what, what kind of things was he teaching you? A lot of them were just songs, of course, as I said, that he would have had collected at the time, big songs from the day shell, like which is about herding the goats. Then, of course, about the Black River water, the Black uh, uh, Water River, um, our But when you ask about religious songs, he taught me one religious song. And I used to say to him, Pilf, why is it that that song comes so easily to me? All the rest of the songs, I have to work my head off to get the, the pronunciation, um, uh, the ornamentation. But this one, which was the seven sorrows of Mary. Mm. And so it's a very beautiful hymn to Mary where it would what we known as what we call a numerical carol, which came to Ireland with the Franciscans in the 13th century. And this is how they taught the people through these songs. The first rejoice, the first sorrow Mary saw was when she saw her son uh, being, um, being, what would we say, being um, suffering with under the hands of his people and so on. And so that's the very beautiful song, the very first religious song I ever learned. 
Noreen, I've heard you talk about these as hearthside hymns that there's something that's less doctrinal and less formally hierarchical about them, that they came from that they came from the people who sang them in the kitchen rather than, you know, uh, somewhere where they were taught formally. Is that true? And could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely right, Father, because of course, you see, at the time when a hymnology would have evolved in Ireland in the 18th, 19th century, as it did in England and America or other places, um, we had the penal laws. And so going to church was totally forbidden. Going to Roman Catholic Church was forbidden. So, but Catholicism wasn't repressed. Christianity wasn't repressed. People kept it alive in the homes, in what we call the Carrigan Afrans, mm. the mass rocks where people gathered to say mass outside. And of course, that's lovely, too, because we don't need any temple or uh, structure to pray, really. But again, it was a very sad time in our history. And so, of course, there were no hymns at that time. But people did sit around and particularly after rituals like the rosary, uh. they would break into song like that. The seven sorrows, the seven rejoices of Mary. And so you've got a very feminine tradition, too, because most of these songs I would claim were written by women because they're anonymous. But of course, that's the great saying, isn't it, Positive, that if something is anonymous, you can assume it was written by a woman. Yeah, anonymous equals woman for most of history. Yeah. Exactly. So um, it's a very feminine um, aspect of Christianity where uh, Mary is seen as the mother keening her son mm. at the foot of the cross. Yeah. And so you have her sometimes saying, Alleluia, O Isa, Ochon, O Isa, um, crying yeah. as a keening woman would have done long ago in Ireland. Yeah. There's that particular one you're talking about, Ochon, this, this kind of sound of lamentation. I don't, alas, I suppose is how I've seen Ochon translated from Irish into English, but alas feels very melodramatic, whereas Ochon feels very primal, really, in terms of the sound it makes in the throat, a sound of sorrow. In, in that particular hymn, there's a, a time when Mary is holding the, the corpse of her dead son and she's remembering and lamenting his ear and his little nose. There's something almost um, of the infant in the in the corpse that she's holding. I, I've always found the poetry of that hymn to be almost overwhelming in its simplicity. Ah, beautiful, beautiful. Is that the wee babe I born nine months in my womb? Machonix Machono that was born in a stable where no house would give us room. Mm. And then Christ is talking down to her again as a mother. Mother, be quiet. <laughs> Let me 
your heart be torn. So there's great intimacy, isn't there, Padre, in those? I know. And there's a way within which this um, comes from a tradition that isn't frightened of lament. What is it about lament, do you think, that is, in a certain sense, its own comfort? Well, of course, we Irish are very good <laughs> at dying, aren't we? We're very good at dying. We, constantly. It's a constant theme that we have, you know. It seems as if, because I suppose of our sad history too, death has always been before us. We've never been afraid to welcome in death. And of course, we have so many beautiful phrases and proverbs, Paul, because you know, around death, like mm. river. death is a direct man and death in Ireland is always a man. Death is a direct man. He never sends a message before he comes. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they, that death is as near to us as the door. And then, of course, you know, there's that beautiful tradition, too, that when we were born, Padraig, you know this, when we were born, a candle is ignited in the heavens and that burns constantly for us until we're called back. And when we die, that candle is extinguished. And so we would never say in Ireland that somebody has just died in the Gwaeltacht. We'd never say somebody has just died. We'd say Ta Quinal Mochta Rivrecha Unlay, which means his or her candle is extinguished before the dawning of day. And the dawning of day, of course, is resurrection. Mm. That lovely idea that we're just here at dress rehearsal for the next <laughs> life. Mm. Um are are a lot of the kind of the the religious elements of these very old songs. Um, I know that you said that plenty of them go back to pre-Christian times, and so they predate a certain kind of theology. They they indicate a, a broad and particular spirituality that was in Ireland and other parts of Europe and other parts of the world too. Would you say why would you say that the music often veers towards both the agricultural but also the spiritual? I suppose it brings in our closeness to nature too and to the music that's in nature and to the the natural connection that we have in Ireland to nature. You know, Ireland is a wonderful little country like that, that we still maintained a huge belongingness to the soil. Yeah. And so the music even, you know, because even when you think back to the, the lovely mythological stories we have, Padraig, around Fionn McCool, mm-hmm. that one time he's asked, what music does he like most? He's asked by his warriors, what is the music that you'd like most? Is it the wind through the trees? Is it the birds in the air, the sound of the ocean, the clash of stones? What is it? And Fionn says, no, it's the music of what happens. Mm-hmm the music of what happens. So that music and spirituality go beyond words, you know, they, it's even, I I mean, that's the pleasure of being with you today. You know, we could spend the whole, the rest of my life talking about God and nature and Ireland and all of that. (laughs) It's such a a privilege. But anyway, I won't get carried away on that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, get carried away. You're glad. Yeah. Um, You, I have seen you perform a couple of times where you sing some parts in Irish, 
but you're also playing a shruti box or some form of harmonium incorporating that with music from India. Um, I know you've studied lots of um, uh, sacred music from around the world. What is it that you find that's particular about the different traditions? And do you think that there's anything that that holds them together as well? Patrick, there's about 10 questions there, but I'll try to address them all, <laughs> one at a time. But certainly, yes, India has been a huge influence on in my life because I think Indians and our Irish are very, very similar. You know, when you go to India, Padraig, I've been there several times now as a cultural exchange between the Irish government and the ICCR, the Indian Council of Cultural Relations. And the minute you go there, there's almost hours around people there, you know. And yes, of course, there's a huge lacuna there between the rich and the poor that is so staggering when you're there. But yet, in the poorest of the poor, you see the face of God. And so, you know, even with the spiritual songs of India, I'd sing a lot of the Bajans of Mirabai. She was the 16th century Rajasthani saint. And so when I went there for the first time in 1982, um, I was, my mind was just blown away by the instruments there, which are reed instruments, not unlike, are the same as, as our own Ilan pipes, but these um, shruti boxes, which you mentioned, which are just simple drones. Yeah. And a drone is wonderful. I haven't got one here beside me. Let me see. Um, because the sound keeps going on. Um, it, it, it is constant there, you know, very often when I started singing in 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 America, I'd go there and people would say, um, where's your harp? <laughs> And I'd say, well, actually, I don't like the harp. <laughs> yeah, I don't now because the sound is doesn't, it doesn't um, keep going. Yeah. So if I play you, I'm over here now playing you um, a little harmonium here. what I mean? Yes, I hear. It's like something's breathing underneath you. And keeping you grounded mm. to whereas the harp, it's gone. The sound is kind of too angelic, too <laughs> ethereal. And Sean Norrie, they used to always say, oh, my goodness, you know, Bonratti singers wearing white nighties and playing the harp, you know. <laughs> You're listening to the Corrie podcast and I'm Padre Gautuma. With me today is the singer and theologian Nodin Nirian and her latest book, Sacred Rituals, a simple book of everyday prayer, was released from Hachette, Ireland in October 2023. Nodin, I'd like to talk to you about um, religion and theology. Um, it's clear that you've had a long-standing relationship with religion but I know that that relationship has been one that's been marked by knowing what it's like to be on the outside and that there was uh, enormous aspects of it that were closed off to you. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and then we'll move into talking about theology. Yes, it's true. Um, being a woman, 
um, in the Roman Catholic tradition is painful um, and it, it strikes every woman at some stage. Um, I suppose in my youth, of course, you take, I grew up in the 50s and the 60s, of course, and then you take everything for granted, Patrick. It's a different time to now when we question everything. So we accepted all of this and I am so pleased that I can retrieve some of the treasures of that time mm -hmm. and some of the rituals, which is what this old book is about too, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, so the, the cliche of the baby going out, thrown out with the bathwater um, didn't really apply. But yes, of course, um, for any woman, it is terribly painful and nonsensical, actually, Paul. Like, it's really crazy. The poor church. I was going to say, uh, you you uh, ordained yourself as a priest to animals when you were a child. How interesting <laughs> that you went to animals for um, sacred ritual. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, being a troubled child, I didn't have anybody else really to convert. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't it wasn't for choice. It was just they were your single audience. Yep. And later on, sure, I tried to convert everybody, my friends in UCC, the boys, my sons, everybody. And now, I, you know, not conversion, but, you know, trying to share things with them. All the hens, all the hens were my most receptive. I go out with the with my little stool, my little Sugan stool, and I sit in the middle of them and I teach them the Our Father. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, to morning, sing it or to say it, to say it, yeah. And oh, morning, okay. and I thought that they were really answering me because they go, but they'd be talking away back to me, you know. <laughs> How old were you? Seven, not seven. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> yeah. And you see, I used to be saying mass too at that stage in my parents' bedroom. My yeah. both my parents, my mother was a, a school teacher, and my father was a businessman. And so very often they'd be gone. You know, my mother would be gone into town to meet her friends, and my father was away all day. But I'd steal into their bedroom saying mass, and uh, that was I tell that in one of my old books that I came out one uh, afternoon out onto the landing to put back my stole, which my, my, one of my mother's scarves, yeah, green scarf. And my brother was there and he said, what are you doing? They're saying mass. No, well, I'm going to become a priest. I said, when I grow up and he said, no, Reen, don't be ridiculous. He said, you can't even be an altar girl, an altar oh. boy, huh. an altar boy. And uh, so that was the first time, Father, I realized that when I'd go to mass next Sunday, it would always be a man. Mm. What a thing to notice at that age. What was it, therefore, that continued to draw you about theology and about that, even though formally an avenue to that professionally was closed to you in the tradition that you were from? I suppose that very strong connection to the divine through what we I call, I suppose now, the Holy Spirit. That I feel, you see, Christianity, all religions, of course, have their treasures and their dark sides every single religion. There are 4,200 religions in the world that fall into the eight branches. There are the main uh, religions and they all have dark, dark sides, mm. but treasures too. And so it was, I think one of the great, when I think of Christianity, I think it's a very balanced religion, Padraig, mm. because it's got the creator there, the creator that created the world. Then it's got the human one, which is what Christ was, but a human one who laughed and cried and 
you know, prayed like you and I. And then you've got the Holy Spirit, which is that energy that's going around the world. Always there, you know, whereas in Buddhism, there is no deity. Yeah. In Hinduism, there's a plethora of a lot of them. Mm. But I think in Christianity has some marvelous a balance about it. And I see the Holy Spirit has been the feminine principle, the Sophia. Yeah. You were the first person to receive a PhD in theology from the University of Limerick. Um, and you wrote your PhD about the uh, a theology of listening. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it is for you that is involved in listening and, and listening as some kind of sacred practice in theology. Mm. And it's been neglected, actually, Padraig, you know, yeah. we thought, well, neglected generally, not just in, 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 in theology, uh, but we're much more sophisticated when it comes to seeing, you know, mm. I, I, I see what you mean um, instead of I hear what you mean. Mm. Um, and so I suppose that really then I was picking up on a lifelong experience, too, that goes back to early childhood, where the God presence was through my ear was always talking to me, always listening and in the silence there, because I spent a lot of time on my own when I was young. Mm. Um, so that, of course, because, of course, you can't talk about sound without talking about silence, too. And uh, so my, I, I spent all my time trying to, and then, of course, music, too, was just its form of listening, too, isn't it? That you're both listening when you're singing, you're listening to your own voice. When we're speaking, we're listening to our own voice. Whereas when we need to see ourselves. We need a mirror. Yeah. Um, but we, our voice never leaves us. Mm. You see, that's one of the mm. beautiful um, biological facts about our hearing. It doesn't have to leave the body to be heard. Yeah. There's the presence of absence in, I suppose, in lots of forms. But like when when you've been singing there on a company, Noreen, you know, you have to stop every now and then to take a breath in, much as I do when I'm just talking to you now. Um, one of the lines from your PhD says, um, the failure to recognize the transmission of mystery in the space between the words has resulted in a fetishistic obsession with precision and perfection in the words themselves. Mm, um, yeah. You seem to be pointing at something that is in between the words, something, whether in music or in language, um, something that is um, undergirding it all. That's beautiful, Pat, I really like that. And what is it that you say it takes to 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 attend to that, to listen to it? See, I think there are three levels of um, listening. And now, again, this is all I'm just being a little magpie, a little plagiarist now here too, um, yeah. picking up on various mystical traditions and on scientific ones too, indeed. Like that there's a first level of listening, which is listening to the sounds around us. I'm here now listening to a crow outside the window, the heating system here at home. And um, so that's the first level where sound is just sound per se. Mm. Then there's a second level where a sound brings you a cognitive thought, brings you into recognition of a message. So, for instance, the words we're speaking now, um, we're making sound intelligible. Hopefully, um, or, you know, a sound of a bus could remind you of an accident you had. The sound of the trees can 
remind you of the rustle of spirit or anything that brings you into uh, gives you a message which mm. i call charismatic and yeah. um, theosophy I, I developed a little name for the whole area of listening to the sound of god and then of course that's third level of listening Patrick, which is the level you've just described beautifully there which is where a sound goes beyond the world goes into the area of mysticism a sound becomes existence a sound um, just brings you into a brilliant image of yourself and of the divine, mm. carrying you beyond that sound. Music, of course, is the language beyond all language, as Rilke would say, is probably one of the great, great conduits of this kind of listening. But again, this is a listening that has to do with the spiritual, that has to do with the non-cosmic, which has to do with the non-profane. I love that word, profane, mm. pro, outside, phanum, outside of the temple. Mm. Anything secular is something that relates to the to the secular, the non-religious. Mm. Um, so that's there's sort of three levels of listening that I was trying to define um it with my stammerings hmm. you you coined a phrase where you said you know that some traditions speak about the third eye of perception but you talk about the third ear mm, yeah and of course we talk about the chakra there the third um, ear to the third eye and of course it's also the third ear listening beyond the ear listening saint benedict who wrote a rule for his monks in the sixth century um much like the times that we have now, troubled times, sixth century Italy. And he says the very first word in that rule for monks and indeed for us now, centuries later, is listen with the ear of the heart. Mm. So that's it, poetry, which poetry, of course, is the great vehicle for listening with the ear of the heart. Mm -hmm. Because you poets, you see, you poets are very special. Mm. In Irish, the word poet is phila which has got to do with the word fecal, which means to see. And so you have an insight, you poets have an insight into something that you can put words on. And then you bring us with you into that insight or into that in oral um, mm. perception of what you ha have perceived. Mm. That's why I love poetry. I sometimes feel like um, poetry is trying to see and feel at the same time. Mm. Somehow you're making noise with language, um, but somehow you're seeing something and underneath that there's there's like an onomatopoeia of experience and feeling that's occurring in it and um, not to draw any yeah. conclusions or to put across a, or to put across a thesis, but in a certain sense to share yeah. some visual experience that is yeah. occurring. And you see, you said it probably there, onomatopoeic and sound. Because I really believe that prayers and poems should be spoken aloud, hmm. that they, you know, they only come alive through the sound when you take that visual sign, which is only a symbol, and you bring it into your body, you sound it out. You know, I always teach people to say uh, a little prayer by Hafez, hmm. who was 14th century lyric poet, poetry, you know, his poetry. And I get people to say very often, I wish I could show you 
when you are lonely or in darkness. The astonishing light of your own being. I wish I could show you when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. That says it all in four little lines, you know. Mm. Or Emily Dickinson, you know. Emily is a great, great uh, mystic friend of mine. Her poetry I've been reading for years, you know. Like hope. Hope is a thing with feathers. Mm. It perches on the soul and sings a song without the words and never stops at all. Um. I was at an event in Dublin last year and asked people to name a line of a poem that they loved. And somebody mentioned that very one by Emily Dickinson. Yeah, yeah. Hope's the thing with feathers, the purchase on the soul. Um, mm. And then somebody replied very quickly, very wittily, a pure dub and said, I'm not sure about feathers, but it's certainly got claws. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> When Lovely. it comes, I mean, you mentioned Emily Dickinson there as a mystic friend, Hafiz, you know, you you go in and out through so many of the, the religions that have been your study. Um, and mysticism is a term that's often used. And sometimes it seems to me that mysticism is described and kind of it invokes an idea of something vague and misty. Um, uh, how would you describe mysticism? What would you say the mystical traditions are? Not to try to make them all the same, because uh, so many traditions do have mystical characters who try to say something about the ungraspable. But what, what would you say mysticism is? Well, first of all, a friend of mine always says mysticism begins in the mist and ends with a schism. <laughs> <laughs> but no, if you take the actual word, then part of the Greek word myo. Myo means, you know, to see through something, you know, uh, myopic, of course, yeah. too, is, you know, to the, the opposite of that. Um, but in our tradition, certainly Einstein, of course, said that on his deathbed. Somebody asked him, um, have you any regret? And he said, yes, that I didn't read more of the mystics. Oh. I didn't read more of the mystics because they go beyond, you see, they go straight up. I always say that about religion, you know, the, and God. You know, God must, you must go straight up. No mixers in the gin and no tonic. <laughs> because, you know, so, so many when institutions come in, of course, they interfere with, and they dilute our connection, our natural connection with the divine. You're listening to the Coromila podcast and I'm Paul Gatuma. With me today is the singer and theologian, Nordin Nijian. Noreen, I, I'd like to talk to you about ritual. I know you've been writing a lot about this and more than writing about it, you've been performing and doing and sharing ritual for, for decades. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, the role of ritual in a life and then talk about some of the specific rituals that you think can be very important to, to have in a person's life? Lovely. Yes, I am a great fan of ritual and the name even might put people off. But actually, our whole life, Padraig, is in a way a ritual. Getting up in the morning, our cup of coffee, our shower. Um, but we can make it, we can make ritual much more present in our lives, just as we often talk about wakefulness and mindfulness and all that. Ritualness, we can also bring, be more conscious of it because it enhances the imagination. I think as I've been thinking about uh, writing this book now and just defining what is ritual. And I would put the three things together, ritual, prayer and blessing. Mm. 
And when I talk about prayer, I'm also talking about poetry. Because for me, a poem is a prayer. A prayer is a poem. Yeah. I think you, you can use those um, interchangeably. Yeah. Um, over the last number of years, as there's been fewer and fewer people who have uh, an interest in any formal affiliation to a religious tradition, I've seen so many people who nonetheless want um, everyday rituals, maybe for the birth of a child or for a marriage or for the ending of something or for um, a funeral or other kind of transitions of life too, that they're looking for something, you know, that can actually be pretty secular, but nonetheless uses words of meaning and words of precision and maybe tenderness and clarity to try to gather people together to bear witness to something that's happening. That's um, true. Very Do true. you find yourself in those situations where it's people who are saying, look, I have no formal interest in religion, but nonetheless, I want something to to mark this change in a life? Yeah, meaningful. I think you put your finger on it there. People are looking for that now because in the church long ago, and again, we're not bashing again, everything was done for us. Mm. The ritual took place there on the altar and out you go. Um, whereas with rituals now, and I can see that from my own ministry, it's so meaningful for a couple to come and create their own ritual yeah. around their marriage, to create their own ritual around their naming, around divorce, indeed, and separation, because, of course, the church never recognized separation and divorce. Yeah. It was always something that, you know, eyes flickered at if you said you were divorced or separated. Yeah. Whereas there's a ceremony for marriage and a ceremony for all of those, but nothing for separation and mm -hmm. divorce. So that was a great motivation for me to go down the path of um, proving that separation and divorce can be a blessing and is a blessing in a lot of cases. In my case, I was I had a beautiful relationship and but there came a time that we both knew we were holding each other back. Mm. And so we remained great friends right up to onto his death in 2018. But without separation, I would not have done a doctorate. I would not have gone for ministry. We were holding each other back. And now you see positive. We're living so much longer now, mm -hmm. you know, 50, 60, 70 years together, you know, and you're very lucky and fortunate if your relationship withstands that. Yeah. Not to hold each other back. You mentioned the word blessing earlier on. Um, and, you know, I, I hear a lot of people asking, you know, what's an Irish blessing or what's a different blessing? Um, I know in Judaism, there's a, a great tradition and uh, almost great particularity about blessing. I had a rabbi friend once who was staying with me and um, we were taking a little tour of the whiskies of the islands of the west of Scotland. <laughs> I had a, a selection out in front of him and I almost like a dare said to him, here, what's the blessing for whiskey? And he thought through to kind of go, would you bless the grain or the water first? Or, you know, and he said this gorgeous blessing in, in Hebrew. Um, and then we proceeded to drink whiskey from the various islands. Um, but I, I wonder if you could talk about, um, again, what you see the role of blessing is. And I suppose I'm really interested in this more from an agnostic point of view, that it's less about pointing towards a heaven or an afterlife. I'm, I'm curious about what the, the this life is that it points towards a blessing. Yes. You see, again, we've lost the art of blessing. You know, 
blessing banacht, as we'd say in Irish, um, is an integral part of living and being in communication with each other. Yeats has a beautiful poem there. Um, I'm just going to get it now, uh, where he talks about blessing there. That one time he was in a um, in a coffee shop in London and he had an epiphany, you know, one of these moments of great insight. It's called vacillation. Is it coming to is it coming to mind here now? No, it's not. But anyway, it's just a moment when WB Yeats is in a coffee shop and he's sitting before his coffee and he looks and he thinks he's had, had this moment and he says in the last line, um, I was blessed and could bless. And so, you know, it's we have to retrieve that idea of blessing each other. And we have that, of course, in the Irish tradition. And we say, may yeah. God bless you, you know, and namaste, as they'd say in, 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 in India. Yeah. And just being able to bless ourselves, first of all, because like the golden rule would say, we must start with ourselves, that self-love of blessing ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then we can bless other people. Yeah. So it's a beautiful concept, actually, it the is, idea yeah. of blessing that we have to retrieve. Yeah. Huh. Um, what is it about the Irish language for you, Noreen, that holds something important? Because you go in and out of Irish um, so fluently and so easily in everyday conversation. I think this might be the longest that you and I have spoken in English any time we've ever spoken. But I am um, I'm, I'm struck by your love for Gaelga and your 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 need, really, it seems to me, to 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 bring it to, to life in conversation. Absolutely, Padraig. You know, it is such a sacred language too. You know, I have a friend, I always say, a friend, and he says that you couldn't speak Irish and be an atheist. <laughs> I'm sure plenty of people would disagree. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know kind of what he means, really, is that, you know, it comes into everything. Yeah, Dia, God be with you, yeah, yeah. So, uh, God between us and all harm, all of that is, you know, and then, of course, seeing nature, seeing God in nature too. It comes across beautifully in the Irish language. You know, it's the most special language in the world. I mean, I'm bit, <laughs> speaking in an unbiased it. fashion, of course, <laughs> Exactly, we're a little biased yourself and myself. Um, <laughs> but there is certainly a magic to it that even, you know, very often I, I might be addressing uh, some foreigners and you'd start in Irish and you keep going maybe for five minutes mm. and they become mesmerized. Mm. You know, they don't get upset or Jesus, has she any English? You know, they just become, um, as I say, kind of hypnotized mm. because it is, it's the sound of the language that's so important. And that's where we go wrong and still go wrong in Ireland today in education mm. in that we teach it by its sight instead of its sound. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yes, so, it's such, um, you know, I, I, writing this book now, all my um, subtitles are in Irish. Mm. Book. And I was only thinking there, they came back to me, the Hashit Press were wonderful publishers. They came back to me and they said, 
index. We're, have you an Irish word for index? And of course, I, I knew exactly what it was. Trower, lower, <laughs> which is the way of the book. <laughs> of the book. How much nicer potted than index, for God's yeah. sake, you know. <laughs> and then, that is lovely. And then, of course, the Irish, it's very clever then too, you see, because, you know, we have a great sense of humour, of course, as you know, and you have yourself. And like, so we say the word for God, and you have the word for the devil, deal, D-I-A-B-H-A-L. And the word are for the church is Aglish. The Aglish is the church. Um, or, of course, Tach Day, as we call it as well, the house of God. But also Agla is the word for um, fear. Huh. And then, of course, fear, you see, when we look at the word fear in Irish, we see far, which means men. Hmm. We have fear coming out there and people will pronounce that as 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 will pronounce um, f- far as fear too. Yeah. Um, my favourite in that category is fun and fawn, to stay and to wander. Um, those are, I find those very important. Both of those are important to me, to stay and to wander. They're just fabulous. Yeah, and so it's lovely. much easier to talk philosophically than in Irish than it is in, mm. in English. <laughs> As we come to a close, Noreen, are there any um, rituals or, or words from the book that you'd want to read um, that you feel might be um, something that you'd like to bring to this conversation? Let me see. So I just got for the, the very short little last word, the fuckle scar, as I call it, the last word. But today, well lived makes every yesterday a dream of happiness and every tomorrow a vision of hope. Look well, therefore, to this day. That's an ancient Sanskrit proverb. Beautiful. As we take our leave from each other's companies, there are two underlying messages of this book of prayer. One is that you're not alone in this. Others have gone before us. Our ancestors, the mystics, have already provided the signposts. Yet it would be a great mistake to limit the world of prayer to the mystic. For prayer, ritual and blessing belong to everyone. The motto is not that the prayer is a special kind of person, but that every person is a special kind of prayer. Secondly, although you now know my way of being at home in ritual, you will have your own way of being in prayer, customs, practice, behaviours that I never thought of at all. May you discover hundreds of ways to express this and add your own habits of existence and growth. Noreen, Irin, I want to thank you very much for coming on the Carmilla podcast. Thanks for your time and for your singing and um, for all the richness that you've shared. Uh, Noreen Irin's latest book is Sacred Rituals, a simple book of everyday prayer. And it was released from Hachette, Ireland in October 2023. The Coromila podcast is created in partnership between Coromila and Fanfan. It's produced by Emily Rowling with mixing, editing and theme music by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios and presented by me, Padraig Otuma. The podcast is generously funded by the Henry Luce Foundation and the Community Relations Council Northern Ireland and the Irish Government's Reconciliation Fund. Thanks to them and thanks to Coromila's friends and supporters and thanks to you for listening. So, Noreen, what's something important that you've changed your mind about? Certainly the Irish language, because oh. as a young child, I was, I hated it. 
Hmm. And then coming on now, it's my passion. Could you tell us about a time when your national identity felt important to you, Noreen? I suppose it feels important to me all the time, actually, Podig. I love being Irish, you know, and I love sharing the Celtic wisdom and the language with people, you know, um, because we're a great little country. And is there a time when you felt foreign? Yes, probably the first time I went to live in the Gwaeltocht mm. was Mihal, when I couldn't speak the language. An Irish speaking area, yeah. Yes, an Irish speaking area. And I was, my heart was broken that I felt a foreigner in my own country, that this language, which is the language of our country, it's the language of our constitution, I was foreign to, you know. Noreen, would you be able to um, share with us a little bit about the background of the Beatitude song that you often recite by yourself or with others? Um, I've been so moved by that. It's in English, which is uh, unusual sometimes for hearing from you. Um, but I'd love to hear some of the story of it and then some of the song. Well, Paddy, you picked up on one of my favourite scripture pieces, of course, because the Beatitude, of course, comes from uh, Matthew. Like, if you're ever looking for a bedtime reading, I think Matthew chapter five to seven, you won't get better. Because <laughs> yeah, it puts you to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, but it's a whole lesson in life. It's Christ's first sermon on the Mount. And uh, so he goes into everything, you know, ask and you shall receive the golden rule to unto others. Um, how do you pray? You simply say our creator, whatever, and it goes through that. And then he does say, the Beatitudes, then blessed. And of course, that has nothing to do with God, really. It's all kind of a way of just the eight great blessings of Christianity. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. It's very, very beautiful. So we've I've recorded it several times. And uh, so, you know, I, I'll sing it for you now. And I'll intersperse it with a little antiphon, something that comes in between every two Beatitudes are blessings. Beatitude is the word, the Latin word for blessing. Um, and so I'll intersperse it each time with um, Amen. Truly, I say to you, um, gather in my name, I am with you. <laughs> Oh, 
Oh, 